Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Twin Movies. I'm Ben Phelps, and I'm joined by my regular buddy and banter. Gabe Garrick. G'day, Ben. Howdy, howdy. Every year, Hollywood releases two movies based on the same idea. So, as always, we ask the big question, which movie did it better? Today, we'll be reviewing two classic twin movies about a group of soldiers questioning their existence and facing the horrors of World War II. It's Saving Private Ryan versus The Thin Red Line. So, Gabe, let's kick off this episode with an overview of these twin movies and our flashback to our first encounter with them. On the 24th of July, 1998, Saving Private Ryan was released. Here's its IMDb synopsis. Following the Normandy landings, a group of US soldiers go behind enemy lines to retrieve a paratrooper whose brothers have been killed in action. So Gabe, how did you originally catch Saving Private Ryan when it was released at the cinema? And what was that experience like? I saw this one at the cinema, and I'd imagine you did too, right? I did, I did. This was like a pretty big year um, to have these two films at the cinema at the same time. And as we've discussed in the past, this was in that window of 98, 99, 2000 when I worked at the Art House Cinema. So it was good times movies all year round. And 98 was a pretty big year for cinema, and this was probably the biggest one. Yeah. I mean, it definitely felt like I was 15, 14 or 15 in school, and this definitely felt like one of those movies that I guess just due to the nature of the film itself and everyone was sort of talking about, particularly that opening sequence that everyone was sort of going to see. And, you know, being 15, it's pretty indelibly imprinted on my mind because I probably hadn't seen violence like that at the cinema before then, you know, to that sort of level. I mean, I might have seen sort of exploitation movies or whatever, that, but that kind of like that Omaha Beach sustained ultra-realistic, ultra-graphic violence sort of pinned me to my seat. Yeah, that was a sales pitch, wasn't it, for this film in that it was about authenticity and it was pitched on in a pre-internet world shows like uh, E.T., Entertainment Tonight, it was pitched as being the authentic war experience and things like Hogan's Heroes on TV and old war films of days gone by were just compared as being incredibly tame by comparison. And this was being sold as a really true representation of what it was like in World War II and particularly at the Normandy landings. And I think everyone went along bracing themselves because they'd been warned how impactful that first 20-minute sequence was. So we both caught this one at the cinema. Later on that year, on the 25th of December, around Christmas time, 1998, The Thin Red Line was released, and here's its IMDb synopsis. An adaptation of James Jones's autobiographical 1962 novel focusing on the conflict at Guadalcanal during the Second World War. So, Gabe, walk me through the first time you saw The Thin Red Line. Was it at the movies? Yeah, and that IMDb synopsis is really not indicative of what this movie is. <laughs> like, Not at all. If not someone at said all. to me, oh, it's a film that just focuses on the conflict at Guadalcanal, you'd be like, oh. I mean, I also really indelibly remember seeing this because when I was nine or ten, whatever, I was really interested in filmmaking. So, the idea of this legendary director reappearing to make a film and a World War II film with this incredibly sort of star-studded cast. I was right there. 
I saw this at the cinema probably almost as soon as it came out. And it was really interesting, as we'll discuss in this twin movies pod, to have seen both of these movies in the same year and being a kind of very filmmaking interested kid watching them and comparing and contrasting. And the sort of artfulness of The Thin Red Line, I probably hadn't seen in a lot of movies, you know, a 15-year-old boy, I'm not, or like a dumb 15-year-old kid. I saw it and I remember really loving it and being really interested in the filmmaking of it. And also, it was shot in Australia. Yeah, that's right. That was a big deal, wasn't it? Because whenever films 20 years ago were shot in Australia, and we've discussed before the impact of The Matrix being shot in Sydney in 1998, it was a big deal. It was a sense of pride. It was a badge of pride in that they were making an international film with huge movie stars on our own shores. And I myself also caught this at the cinema as well. This film was particularly impactful to me because I was my second year of studying film studies at uni. I discovered film studies sort of towards the end of my arts degree at uni, and I hadn't really watched many classic films up until then. And so one of the first films we saw, which I guess would be a seminal art house film to watch in film theory, is Days of Heaven. Terence Malick's second film from 1978. So having studied Malick's work, having watched those hypnotic images of straw blowing in the wind and all these scenes shot at Magic Hour with voiceover and this melodic slow motion, classics of use of mise-en-scene with unusual shots edited together, which create this very poetic cinematic experience, I was absolutely... I'm not sure if I was chomping at the bit or I was champing at the bit, but nonetheless, I was really keen to see his first film in 20 years. And I would say around the world there were plenty of people who were really anticipating the return of Terence Malick. And I think universally, and we'll get to the box office and the Rotten Tomatoes scores later, but I think he generally delivered on people's expectations of his impression of a World War II film. And They say that some films must be watched for the first time in the cinema and I watched this one in the cinema and, yeah, this must have been like what it was like to watch Days of Heaven in the cinema 20 years beforehand. Like, it's one of those films like Tree of Life later in 2011 which you just give yourself over to and just sort of like swim in the incredibly exotic images on screen, even when those images contain violence and so on like wartime. Totally. I mean, both of these movies really feel like they benefited from the big screen. And it's interesting with The Thin Red Line, I mean, the idea that a war film from a sort of auteur who had disappeared and was reappearing to release this new film really felt like this huge cinematic event as kind of compared to movies nowadays where it's like, oh, finally the comic book crossover or, you know, that we've been waiting for. Look, That might not have been the case, but certainly back then it felt like this big deal that Malick was coming back. Now he seems to pump out a a new movie every year or whatever, and they're called sort of very dismissively, I will say, all sort of interchangeable. Of course, they're not. That's maybe a dickhead, but yeah. No, I think you're right in many respects. At the time, it was the return of a legend, like this hermit-like character, a mystery, and this is in a pre-internet, pre-social media world, who made this film, Days of Heaven, and what was his film before that? I've just escaped Oh, me. Badlands. But they're like, Badlands. There wasn't even pictures of him. People were like, what does he even look like? Exactly. 
the internet was around back then, right? I mean, in a primitive form. Yeah, you know, this idea that no one even knows what the bloke looks like. He'll only be photographed like while wearing his big hat or something. Yeah, that's you know, right. Exactly. So I recall doing research for an essay on him and having university, like college library access and all the resources available at the time, which was, I guess, the best possible information you could have to try and find someone. I couldn't find anything of him except for a couple of images at the time 20 years ago when he shot Days of Heaven, but nothing since. So, he was an enigma and this was the return of a legend. So, there was a lot of pent-up anxiety. And perhaps we should actually get to how we got here and how we had these two incredible films giving very different depictions of World War II coming out in the same year. So, let's start with Saving Private Ryan. So, Saving Private Ryan was actually inspired by a true life story. The writer, Robert Rodat, actually read about a story about a family that lost two sons and the third son was sort of snatched to safety. And that became the launching pad for a fictionalised version of this story. And it happened quite quickly. I think he pitched it in 96. And very quickly, this film came together and was released in 98, which is an incredibly quick turnaround from pitch to script to production to release. And this also coincided with the time when Steven Spielberg, the director, was launching DreamWorks. So I think that was probably an accelerating agent in that he wanted to have a film of cultural significance. And he's talked about also having always been fascinated with World War II. And so I guess launching this mega creative company in 98 DreamWorks and then being able to sort of focus on one of the most influential points in history in his life, World War II, was probably a combination of everything coming together, a synergy, if you will, and it being sort of the perfect launching pad for this new studio and a way for him to tell a story about an event in history that had always fascinated him. Totally. And what had he made right before this? He had made Armistad and Jurassic Park 2 and then before and Schindler's that, List. Yes, he did Schindler's List. And then, and I think from memory, Jurassic Park 2 and Armistad weren't particularly well received. I mean, you know, there's still Spielberg movies and stuff. But so, yeah, I mean, it really felt like he, I mean, he wasn't making awards bait, was he? Did it, was that even a thing back then? Maybe it was. Making what, sorry? Awards bait? Awards bait. I think he was just genuinely interested at this point in his career and doing some, let's say, heavier material in regards to their themes. So, in terms of, like, his directing filmography at that point, I mean, this film was released in 1998. Prior to that, he's done Amistad in 97, The Lost World, Jurassic Park 97, Schindler's List 93, Jurassic Park 93, Hook 91, Always 89, Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade 89. So, you can kind of see that it gets this point where... With Amistad, Saving Private Ryan and Schindler's List, he's leaning into the heavy thematic stories. And after this, he goes into harder science fiction with AI, artificial intelligence, and Minority Report. Then he goes into almost these biopics, Catch Me If You Can, and The Terminal, then War of the Worlds, back to sci-fi, then back to biopic with Munich, and then back to a retro, which is Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Last Crystal Skull. 
I mean, depending how you feel about the terminal, I'd call it delightful. Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull really was a uh, – that was him finally, a, a nice little streak there, um, really hitting a dead end. Exactly. Okay, what about Thin Red Line? Well, this one's interesting. So, New York-based producer Bobby Geisler first approached Malick in 1978 and asked him to direct a film adaptation of David Rabe's play In the Boom Boom Room. Malick declined the offer. In the Boom Boom Room? Yeah. In the Boom Boom Room. Good title. Great title. Malick declined the offer, but instead he discussed the idea of a film about the life of Joseph Merrick. But then once word got out about David Lynch's film The Elephant Man, Malick shelved that idea. So then, 10 years later, Geisler, who's obviously very keen to work with Malik, he and another colleague met up with Malik in Paris and suggest doing an adaptation of D.M. Thomas's 81 novel, The White Hotel. Malik declines again, but says he'd be willing to do an adaptation of Moliere's Tatoufé or James Jones's Thin Red Line. The producers choose the latter, and then they pay Malik 250k to write a screenplay. So this is in 88. This is 10 years before the film's been released and 10 years after Days of Heaven. So Malik begins adapting A Thin Red Line on the 1st of January 1989. And five months later, the producers receive their draft. And lo and behold, surprise, surprise, for Terence Malik, it's 300 pages long. <laughs> That's pretty unsurprising, right? Yeah. Anyway... The writing goes on and they indulge him with every whim in terms of his obscure research material, including a book titled Reptiles and Amphibians of Australia, which I guess might explain the opening shot of the crocodile uh, in the very first shot of the film, and an audio tape of um, Kodo, Heartbeat Drummers of Japan, and all sorts of things in relation to code talkers in the US Marine Corps and so on. So basically, they really want to work with him and. Essentially, they even mortgage their house for him and do everything possible. Anyway, he goes on. He works on other things as well. He spends $2 million of other producers' money, half of it on writing on another screenplay, which doesn't happen. Anyway, he meets up with James Jones's widow in 1990, and things are going along. Now, in January 1995, so here we are, 18 years after they first meet, and eight years after he's first signed, and the producers are now broke, <laughs> and they just pressure him to decide, you know, what's he going to make? So they approach his former agent, Mike Medavoy, who you might have remembered from previous films. He had a production company called Phoenix Pictures. So he agrees to giving them 100K to start work on the Thin Red Line, and he had a deal with Sony Pictures. So they start scouting locations to shoot in Panama and Costa Rica before settling on the rainforests of northern Australia. And finally, in April 97, they're about to start, and then Sony pulls the plug just as the crew was building sets in Queensland because the new studio chairman, John Cayley, didn't think Malik could make the movie for the proposed $52 US million. So then Malik goes to LA with Metavoy to pitch the project to various studios, and Thank goodness for him, and luckily for us, 20th Century Fox agreed to put up 39 mil of the budget with a stipulation that Malik must cast five movie stars from a list of 10 who were interested. And then a Japanese company, Pioneer Films, I think the same pioneer that's into electronics, they throw an 8 mil to the budget and Phoenix 
Mike Metavoy's company add another three mil, and that's the budget. So that might explain why the thin red line, which we'll get to, has all these various stars in it, because that was a stipulation of Fox when they agreed to put in $39 million at the last minute and essentially had Malik and the producers over a barrel with only a few months until they shot. Yeah, although surely, I mean, I remember hearing a interview with George Clooneyman at the time, who appears in a small role at the end of the film, that there was all these actors who were just clamouring for like any part exactly. in the movie, just to be involved in the legendary Terry's uh, new film. So it's sort of unsurprising then that there is this amazing cast. Apparently people flew at their own expense to go and meet Malik because he was a legend to them as well. And they took time out of their schedule from shooting other films or other TV shows. That includes Ed Norton, Matthew McConaughey, William Baldwin, Ed Burns, Josh Harnett, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Stephen Dorff, Leonardo DiCaprio, all leaving mid-shoot, Nicolas Cage, to try and meet up with this legend and offering to work for free. Even Tom Cruise, apparently, was really keen to work as well. Dermot Mulroney, Kevin oh, Costner, Will we missed Patton, that Peter Mulroney in the movie. Brad Pitt, Al Pacino, Gary Oldman. I mean, Johnny Depp, Martin Sheen, yeah, wow. Robert De Niro, Robert Javel. Like, everyone was keen to work on this film. So, yeah, even though the studio said, you must cast five of our ten stars, these people were lining up and offering to do it for nothing. In fact, apparently, Bruce Willis actually offered to fly most of the crew first class to the shoot just so he could be in the film for a few lines. Wow. That's how keen, yeah. And, and it's funny uh, to hear these stories. turned him down. <laughs> well, no, nah, sorry, Bruce. Because <laughs> he's not in the movie. <laughs> he was probably in a bit of a hot part in his career at this stage. So for him to be turned down would have been hard for his ego, I imagine. Okay, that's a good time to get to our review of both films. So let's kick it off with a review of Saving Private Ryan. Gabe, walk me through your review of this film. Did you like it? And what did and didn't float your boat? Excuse the pun. I mean, look, it's an amazing movie, the sort of photography, the, the scale of it, the performances. It's pretty awesome. It's interesting, though, I guess, that earlier you said this was made as a kind of antidote to Hollywood war films that might be glorifications of World War II or sort of just gung-ho, that type of film, A Dirty Dozen or something like that, which rules. But it's interesting, this movie, because if I had a, a kind of one sort of big criticism of it, is that that opening 30 minutes is incredible and effective and shocking and violent and visceral. But by the end of the movie, it has basically become a men-on-a-mission hijinks-type movie where you sort of become actually kind of desensitised to the violence because of the beginning. And, you know, there's kind of like slapstick gore scenes. And, and although some of the characters kind of die in very gruesome and sort of sad ways, I guess it weirdly sort of becomes what it was designed to be an antidote to, do you think? That's interesting, and I thought you might raise that. I think that's a result of watching this film 20 years after its release. Maybe. And that times have changed. Maybe. I don't find this film as shocking, and I don't find its visual style as confronting as it was at the time. No, well, totally. I mean, it's been aped and so many other movies have done that kind of incredibly rugged handheld. And I mean, you and I have probably seen so many 
deaths on screen now just by virtue of watching so many movies that, yeah, the, the violence isn't nearly as shocking as it was. And same with war films being increasingly graphic or graphic in their violence, taking that sort of page out of this. Like the only way to depict war these days is to make sure that you're doing it in such a way that conveys to people the violence and horror of it. Yeah, exactly. One of the techniques that Spielberg used to shoot this film to try and maintain an intensity and an immediacy was to shoot it handheld, which at the time was pretty unconventional. Ironically, one of the few people who would shoot handheld is someone like Terence Malick. But in terms of studio films, they were very much on cranes or on tracks, on dollies or on tripods. It was much more static or controlled, and he wanted to be able to have the camera react to the unpredictable events happening around them on the beach and so thought it'd be best not to storyboard and then to try and capture it in that documentary-like tone. And he also did things like he changed the shutter on the camera so the end result is that the film has more of a staccato effect to try and add to that immediacy. And they used an effect at the time which was very uncommon and quite risky in developing film called Bleach Bypass, which essentially strips away a lot of the colour to try and make the film look less glorious, less beautiful. And it makes basically the darks darker and the whites whiter. It's a higher contrast. And even though we're so used to that now in an era of digital shooting and digital colour correction, at the time that was considered to be quite unconventional. And people would often try and make films look more attractive than actually make them look less attractive, which is what the effect of desaturation did. And the film has a lot of intense violence on screen, the sense that you see explosions and limbs and gore and so on. But interestingly, whether the film The Three Kings was inspired by Saving Private Ryan or the director David Russell already had in mind what he was going to do before seeing this, Three Kings, which came out about a year later in 99, which is a modern take on the heist film set during the first Gulf War, It also had the same visual style in terms of bleach bypass, uh, in terms of colour correction of the film, and handheld and changing the shutter angle to try and have that staccato effect to try and give more immediacy to the action scenes and so on. There's actually a scene in that film where you actually see a bullet pass through someone's inside guts. And it's just one single visual effect shot to try and depict the damage that one single bullet can do to the inside organs of a human to try and demonstrate that just one bullet's enough, just one shot's enough to kill someone, to try and bring it home as to how effective a killing machine, a gun can be. And that one shot to me is in some respects as powerful as many of the kind of more traditional explosions and grenades and exterior gunfire that occurs in this film. That technique wouldn't work in Saving Private Ryan. You couldn't. No, it suits the genre of Three Kings and wouldn't yeah, work in Private yeah. Ryan. But, but it speaks to the way that we've been inculcated to be desensitised towards violence or it takes new representations of violence to make us actually feel the impact. And I think for me, what was the most impactful thing about the scene, that first 20 minutes watching it again for this podcast, it wasn't actually the scenes where someone like lost their arm or their legs during an explosion as they landed on the beach. It was like the accidental deaths, like the guy who jumps out of the U-boat and he's sinking underwater and he's desperately trying to pull his backpack off. Oh, and he drowns. He's drowning. He can't get his- yeah, yeah. There must have been so many deaths like that which weren't 
someone directly hit by a bullet, but they or they get a, a tiny bit of shrapnel on the side of their face, their eye, and they die slowly off to the side. Like there isn't that glorified shot you see in a Rambo film where someone gets shot in the chest and they have their arms out beside them, they kind of shake their top torso, you know, left to right. Oh, like platoon um, sergeant. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, Willem Dafoe being shot in that, exactly. The sort of Christ crucifixion pose. But yeah. like you said, the, like, like Three Kings is a, a heist movie set against the Gulf War. Don't you think that at the end of the day, Saving Private Ryan is still like a men on a mission movie just set in World War II? So in a way, it is just like kind of the dirty dozen. It's just sort of dressed itself up with- Yeah, it's basically kind of two class films, isn't it? And, yeah, because after they storm Omaha and take the landing, Tom Hanks' character is given this mission, find Ryan. He's got his six guys- whatever it is, and gradually one by one they'll get picked off as they find their way to this place which they then have to defend. And look, I don't have a problem with – I love Men on a Mission war films. I said earlier, man, like Dirty Dozen is one of my favourite movies of all time. I guess this is just a good version of one of them that sort of really dressed itself up to be like feel more important or something. Yeah, it does feel like a tale of two films where we had all that publicity at the time in 98, 21 years ago, about – the authenticity of war in that first 20-minute sequence landing in Normandy for the Omaha Beach invasion. And then there's the other film, which does feel more classical, as you say. And I wonder if that's because Spielberg pulled his punches for the rest of the film because he thought the audience couldn't sustain that degree of violence. Or it's just a case that you cannot have a film that goes for two hours. That's just the landing scene on the beach. So naturally, it has to slow down. But even when it does slow down, it doesn't seem to have the same intensity in terms of representing violence as that first sequence. Like, there is one scene where there's that fight where people are trying to, like, gouge out each other's eyes and someone's stabbed. That's pretty impactful towards the end of the film. Yeah, I mean, I think there's still a lot, you know, when, spoilers, Giovanni Ribisi's character is killed, although we don't see him get shot, you know, the, the sequence where he's lying there, and it sort of holds on him as his chest continues to bleed. I mean, it's or when um, Adam Goldberg, yeah, gets very slowly stabbed. And But I guess by the end, because of the level of violence, there's basically people by the end are being killed as gags. They've got to make the sticky bombs at one point. So they fill up socks with explosives and coat them in, what, like tar or something. So they can stick them onto the side of tanks. And there's that bit where, like, the American soldier runs up and he must prime it wrong or something. And he explodes into all these little pieces. And it's weirdly feels like it's played as like a gag, like it's like a slapstick exploding human. And I don't know, it just sort of feels like by that point, it's really not the movie it was at the beginning. Yeah, I didn't interpret that as a gag, but I didn't feel as much sympathy for him because there wasn't a cut to a reaction shot. Like, right. they just lost a guy and they don't have many guys. At the starting sequence, there are like what, ostensibly thousands of people sure. landing. So you can't feel for everyone in the sense that you haven't identified with every character. When that guy throws that sticky bomb and explodes, I'm surprised there wasn't a reaction shot from Tom Hanks or one of his guys. They just seem to sort of move past it pretty quickly, even though it's a pretty dramatic thing to see, right? I couldn't even tell you from memory which character that was. So He must have been one of those soldiers who was in the companionship of... Private Ryan, played by Matt. Yeah, yeah, he's like Max Martini or someone, one of those guys. But weirdly, the thing is, even though I'm sort of saying this is a criticism, that it sort of it actually sort of gives the movie for me now, 20 years later or whatever, more replayability. Because at the end of the day, it's like, yeah, it's just a sort of genre war film, men on a mission movie. So because of that, I sort of 
like, it sounds like a criticism, but it's kind of not. It's just like, oh, I kind of, I know what this movie is. Yeah, there are some parts also in the film too, which I guess I feel morally ambiguous, which is surprising for a Steven Spielberg film. So, that part you mentioned there, I guess, I don't think it's intended to be played for laughs, but the way it's sort of edited, it isn't as, as dramatic as a starting sequence. But there's another sequence when they're counting the dog tags, trying to find Ryan's name on a dog tags. Oh, yeah. And they're kind of like going through those dog tags like it's a jar of candy. Mm. There's just so many. And all the younger soldiers are walking past and just watching these guys laughing and mucking around as they're trying to find the tags. And- What's great about that sequence is that Tom Hanks isn't aware, and I'll do a little spoiler award for the Memento Award later on, which is moments you forgot about until you saw it again. I just assumed because Tom Hanks is Tom Hanks, I remembered the scene from 21 years ago as Tom Hanks seeing those soldiers looking at him and his company, fooling around and realising that what they're doing is quite inappropriate with the dog tags in front of these pretty battered and exhausted surviving soldiers who are walking past. But on seeing the film again, it's actually Giovanna Ribisi's character who comes along and alerts all of them, including Tom Hanks, as to the inappropriateness of what they're doing, which I thought was interesting because it kind of makes Tom Hanks a little less hero-like in that he is, I guess, as distracted and just momentarily unempathetic as they are. Yeah, it's a nice choice, I think. Because I guess that kind of greyer, well, it's not really grey morality, is it? But but having him not be the guy who chides them or whatever, I think plays nicely. For me, less well-playing. A moment that plays less well is the whole interaction between Jeremy Davis' character and this the captured German guy who, you know, he tells them they should let him flee or they should release him to sort of contextualise it. Um, Everyone wants to – they capture this guy. He's been involved with the unit or whatever who's killed Giovanni Ribisi's character. They plan to sort of execute him. Jeremy Davies sort of pleads for his life and they eventually let him go. And then later we see that guy. I can't remember exactly. Is he the one who actually shoots Tom Hanks? So, this is the confusing part. So, just to remind our audiences, Jeremy Davies plays the skinny new soldier who's the interpreter. Yeah, yeah. he's like way out of his depth type thing. Way out of his depth. Yeah. By the way, I actually mistook him as Billy Crudup. What? He looks like a very young Billy Crudup. Jake. I actually had to go to IMDb and then go, oh, that's the guy from Lost. Look, I would understand it if you got um, Jim Caviezel and Ben Chaplin confused in the Thin Red Line. Those two guys look exactly the same. But They look nothing alike. <laughs> they look nothing alike. So, in that sequence there, yeah, Jeremy Davies playing Corporal Upman tries to, uh, I guess, spare the German soldier's life. I think it's actually very unclear, particularly for a mainstream audience, whether the soldier who survives, the German soldier, is the same one who stabs Adam Goldberg. No, he's definitely not him. So he's not him. He's one of the guys firing at Tom Hanks at the bridge sequence at the end, and then Jeremy Davies shoots him. You know, like, war has made him so hard now that that compassion that he had earlier, he's, you know. So, I spotted him at the end as being the same person, but it makes less sense then that if he isn't the German soldier who killed Adam Goldberg by stabbing him through the heart with a knife, then walks past Jeremy Davies and for some unknown reason spares his life and goes on, that makes less sense. My reading of that was just that that soldier has clocked Jeremy Davies' character as being inefficient. He's pathetic. He's not even worthy of being stabbed or whatever. Do you think, though, it was a missed opportunity to not have the German soldier? 
So uh, essentially, then it reminds Jeremy Davies that had Jeremy Davies not let him go or not convinced the team to let him go, then his mate Adam Goldberg playing private Malish wouldn't have been killed. Wouldn't that have felt more like a circular Sure, but isn't the German soldier who he lets go one of the ones who shoots Tom Hanks? So I guess that's where he decides that the other guys were right. Look, I guess all I'm saying is I find that whole, that little plot line kind of obvious or pat or, I don't know, mawkish or something. Like, just Yeah, I agree. I think, it's very unru- I think it's very unrealistic that this new uppity interpreter, who they barely know, this translator, they would somehow go along with his belief that they should let that German soldier kick on by himself and be picked up by some other American troop down the road. I agree. That feels a bit pat. I don't mind the way it pays off down the track, but it's hard to believe that this company would agree to let him go in the first place. Yeah. And while we're reviewing it, I feel I should bring up the other thing that, and maybe it's because I'm an editor that often gets talked about, is the bookends for this movie with the old character visiting the cemetery who in the opening sequence we're led to believe is Tom Hanks because it cuts directly from this old guy thinking to Normandy. But at the end, there's the morph from Matt Damon to the old guy and it's such a cheap trick because Matt Damon's character is not at Normandy. So this edit, which clearly by virtue of, you know, juxtaposition is saying this man is thinking of a thing, this is the thing he's thinking of, is pretty editorially unforgivable. Yeah, I 100% agree. I thought the same thing. I mean, at least they didn't cut from the old man's face to from his eyes to the eyes of Tom Hanks. That would have been more misleading. But when they do that effect that first became famous from the Michael Jackson video, was it black or white? I think it was. The morph. The morph, where basically, I think in the Michael Jackson music video, Black or White, we see various people who are both black and white morph into each other, into different genders, ages, sizes, etc. And seeing that effect in this film serves no positive purpose and just looks odd. Morphs have aged about as well as Star Wipes. Exactly. Like, exactly. terrible. Willow might have been the first movie that used a morph, by the way, I think. Yeah, they should just cut from the eyes of Matt Damon in the past to the eyes of old Matt Damon in the present, and that would have been well and truly sufficient. I wonder if you didn't have a morph, people would have been very confused because, like I said, the opening very clearly sets up that this old bloke is Tom Hanks. And it's not like a twist, like, wow. It's just that's what the editing is doing. For 80 years of cinema beforehand, people weren't confused by the match cut from face to face, from past to present. So I don't think they would have been. And if they would have been confused by that, that could have actually been corrected by not doing the edit in the first place, as you say, which I'm not sure is meant to be deliberately making you think he's on the boat or just a poor choice. What do you think? I feel like it's making you think he's on the boat and at the end it's like, oh, that wasn't him. I mean, look, I think that you could just take the um, bookends off this movie entirely and the movie would be just as effective. You could just hard cut in to the transports arriving at Omaha and just lose the end. I don't really know how much is gained from the shots of the old bloke and the family giving him space. To me, this is one of those movies where, where the bookends just don't help. Road to Perdition, for instance, is another one. You could, just has this framing device that I think 
I just don't really understand why it's there. I think it's there for the reason that this man's life has been spared and it's been spared at the expense of at least two others. Vin Diesel's character, Giovanni Ribisi's character, oh, Adam Goldberg's character. A whole character. lot of them. Tom Sizemore died. So I think the idea is to say that if this person's going to be spared and had their life saved at the expense of many more, then his life is worthwhile. You mean did he in fact earn it as he is told to earn it? Because we see his whole family there behind him. like He has earned it by having children and, and grandchildren and so on. But I don't know. To me, it's like kind of one of those overly sentimental beats that, I don't know, just plays wrong for me. But I don't love sentimentality in movies like that. So each to their own. Maybe it made a lot of, a lot of other people cry there in the cinema. I felt really uncomfortable watching this incredibly white Anglo family with the three blonde girls, the blonde mum. It just felt like the middle America Texan farmer family or something like that. It just made me feel quite uncomfortable because it just felt so overtly white. Like a propaganda poster. Yeah, ironically, given the films at World War II. So that part was odd. And also, too, I didn't like the idea that the guy's life was worthwhile for the simple fact that he created children. Like, essentially, when his wife says, yep, you've done a good thing, there's no sense as to what good thing he's done as to being a good man, unquote, except that he had family, as if that's, like, the only badge of recognition and achievement for living a good life. Of course, it is a good thing to do, but the only thing to do? That was problematic from my point of view. Yeah, but Ben, we don't know that. He might have achieved other things beyond that. Like, he might have earned it by amassing the biggest DVD collection or something. I guess we just never see that old man in his house. He could have raised, like, four generations of truffle dogs. Totally. That became the most famous truffle-sniffing hounds on this side of the US of A. If they'd ended that way, bookends earned. That's how you earned the bookends, truffle dogs. The truffle story. Sure. So, any other final thoughts before we move on to our review of The Thin Red Line? Now, let's talk Terry's Thin Red Line. So, why don't you kick things off? Walk me through your impressions now, 20 years after the fact. I still really like this movie. And it's interesting watching it compared to Terry. He's like my best bud, Terry. To Terrence Malick's later movies, because this still has a plot. It has all of the kind of things you come to expect from a Terrence Malick movie, those sort of like um, beautiful shots looking up into leaves as sunlight, dappled sunlight falls through them or random shots of nature and stuff. But, you know, there's still a sort of traditional plot. I really love this movie. The, The photography, the editing, which apparently took like 20 months or something, some huge amount of time. The music, man, Hans Zimmer's score for The Thin Red Line and also the... Melanesian Choir is just phenomenal. I don't watch this movie once a year or anything, but every time I put it on, I always find it quite transfixing, I suppose. So, yeah, I'd say I really like it. What about you? I'm embarrassed to say that I found this film a hard sit. Really? Yeah, and I'm really embarrassed to say that. It had aged bad? Like, you, it was different to what you remembered? Or were you just no. trying to do stuff at the same time? Were you looking at a phone while you were watching this? Yep. My brain has changed. My oh, okay. Interesting. attention has changed. Like, that's my fault. I think in an era where we can watch anything at home, and to be fair, when I watch most films at home, and I also have a 1080p projector, so I watch it with great sound and a big image, and 
I often throw my phone across the room to avoid distractions. In this case, I had the phone with me because I was taking notes for the purpose of this podcast episode. But in having my phone, you're tempted to go down the IMDb rabbit hole where you look up a certain actor's filmography. And this film has so many recognisable actors that it's very distracting. And I think just the way we've been conditioned in the last 10 years since smartphones became ubiquitous to just have it essentially shorter attention spans, then it made this film a hard sit. Now, I can't recall a lot of this film. This film, and like many Terrence Malick films to me, are like poems. I recall the tone or how I felt about it. And because they often don't have a strong plot, then you remember isolated sequences that are kind of loosely strung together. And I enjoyed it. I mean, let me walk you through what I enjoyed. This film is playing all the classics. And help me out here with the uh, the best of Malik's. You've got, as you say, the camera looking upward through branches with the sun shining through. You've got shots of the ground with beams of light shining through branches and sort of like the dust swirling around in a beam of light. You've got scenes you see like 15 years later in Tree of Life with like people swinging on swings in the backyard. Amazing shot. Like all these flashback sequences between Miranda Otto, who plays Ben Chaplin's fiancée or wife, all those sequences seemed ripped out of Tree of Life. Like it's a romanticised image of a rural backyard where people play in gardens with like clipped green lawns, swing on swings, dance around in very bare kitchens with sun shining through. You can't help but think that this is some sort of very strong memory from Malik's past that he has because that's a recurring image in a lot of his films. The other classic hits All the that- while, the, that absolute classic Malik thing of the VO is going which there's probably less of in this than his later movies, but the ruminations on where did great evil come from or whatever it is, and, you know, the nature of humankind. Well, the double VO because you have Miranda Otto looking down the barrel of the lens, down the camera, almost into the eyes of the camera, in that case played by Ben Chaplin, and then you've got the voiceover of Ben Chaplin talking in esoteric ways about the meaning of life and existence and romance and all sorts of random ideas. So the other classics you've got is uh, the grass swaying. Oh, that shot is amazing. Yeah. What I love about this film is that it shows the swaying grass, but unlike Days of Heaven, it has a totally different meaning. And by that I mean this. In Days of Heaven, the beautiful scene shot at Magic Hour, and for the audiences who aren't filmmakers – Magic Hour is that point where the sun just dips below the horizon and then there's a window, and it isn't actually an hour, it's probably more like 20 minutes, where there isn't any shadow. So it's before sunset in the sense that before the sky is too red, it's like a pink hue, and it's low contrast. So basically people can be walking around in the backyard, for example, And there's no obvious shadow on them because the sun is set below the horizon. Is that a fair description of Magic Hour? Yeah, it's like a 15-minute period between sunset and nighttime. Yeah, and Malik is notorious or famous for actually shooting multiple days in a row for only 15 minutes at a time just to shoot in Magic Hour. In an era where 
there was less flexibility in colour grading images like you can now with digital cameras. So you had to get it right in the camera at the time. And that would then mean his shoots went on for a very long time because he was capturing during 15 minutes of the day opposed to 10. So we've got that happening. And here, though, with the swaying straw, that's replaced by swaying grass. But rather than being romantic as it is in Days of Heaven, here it's what it hides. It's a place to hide in and it's a place in which the Japanese soldiers, the enemy of our protagonists, hide within. And that's just a fantastic inversion of an iconic Terence Malick visual that has a totally different meaning in the context of a war film. Yeah, interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way. I was too busy just going, fuck yeah, John Toll shot the heck out of that grass. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it looked amazing. When you see that swaying grass, particularly on a wide shot, where the wind passes across and then you see the grass move as the wind moves across it, it's like a malevolent force, like a ghost pushing through the grass. looks fantastic. Another kind of iconic style of Malik's is where you'll have a scene playing, like in this case, let's say it's a shootout where the Japanese are shooting towards the American soldiers and vice versa. Then just cuts randomly to a shot of a newborn bird that's struggling out of its egg that's kind of covered in like that kind of embryotic kind of gel as it's sort of like struggling. It resembles basically like a dying soldier wriggling forward, but it's the opposite. It's a bird that's just been born that's learning to free its limbs and come to life. And apparently when they made the film, they'd be shooting this really expensive scene that's been set up for like hours in advance. And then Malik would basically just tell John Toll to shoot towards a tree or a bird like in the opposite direction of an action scene. And then they'd have to reshoot the entire scene again. I know the guys who shot that famous crocodile shot that opens the movie, and they'd just be sent out day after day, sort of second unit, just to film anything that caught their fancy that they thought Terry might like nature-wise. And that was one of the things that they got, that, that shot of the crocodiles in the water. You've got to wonder how much stuff they shot for this movie. The shooting ratio, which is the amount of footage shot, compared to the amount of the length of the film, must have just been off the chain. Well, they're shooting on film, so it's expensive. They're not seeing it until it's developed. I suppose the one positive is that if they're shooting on film in remote locations without electricity, then there's a flexibility to sort of shoot for longer in more remote locations. But it's crazy. Apparently, the editor has spent like months by herself editing, which is remarkable because I sort of feel, given the aesthetic style that Malik has made famous, you would think that he'd be by her side trying to style and craft this film in his particular aesthetic. But she must have obviously had very strict instructions and then did her own thing. And then perhaps he came in and they spent another year after that. Perhaps she was putting together the assembly, which didn't include these sort of random shots of trees and birds and grass. She might have had an assistant putting together just like a a separate reel of just, here you go, Terry, here's the best shots of grass if you want to put them in somewhere. But yeah, I mean, typically an editor will assemble the movie as they shoot. So if they shot for 100 days, she would have been cutting for 100 days and probably barely seeing the director, if at all. You would imagine communicating with them, but maybe in this case not. But um, yeah, I think when they wrapped... They had like a five or six hour assembly or something. And then they spent, you know, seven more months cutting. And then I think 
another 13 months on top of that as they tried various iterations of the movie. This is definitely one of those films. I'll say that if they released some sort of five-hour original director's cut or assemble or, I mean, I presume the version that went out is Terrence Malick's director's cut. But, you know, like, a, I guess every now and again you read about, like, oh, will they release the Billy Bob Thornton narrated version or something? Man, I would love to see a work print of this movie. Well, Billy Bob Thornton recorded two and a half hours of voiceover for the original four-hour cut. So, there's a different film out there. But there is also a lot of voiceover in this film by the other characters. So, it wasn't like they just tossed the baby out with the bathwater. But having Billy Bob talk for two and a half hours would be very entertaining. No, totally. And look, if that cut was four or five hours, that's still two and a half or two hours longer than the cut that was released. And look, it might just be two additional hours of shots of like crocodiles or whatever. And it might not have any of the actors whose scenes were cut or anything like that. But like, I'd be interested to see it because Adrian Brody is barely in this movie and apparently his part was quite large. It's one of those movies that really feels like it was made in post, like Terrence Malick makes his movies in the edit. And as you described earlier, how long it took him to write, this really feels like one of those films where they say, what do they say? You make a movie three times. You make it when you write it, you make it when you shoot it, and you make it when you cut it. That each of those elements, the script and then the production and then post, were probably all very different as an evolution which is very interesting. Yeah, 100%. It does feel that like he sculpts his films in post. And it'd be interesting to know if he actually has been so prolific since this film. He's made nine movies in the 20 years since this film. There was this film in 98, then there was a break for seven years, and he made the modern version of Pocahontas called The New World in 2005. And then since 2005, he's made eight films. So he's gone from being... And Enigma, who made films very infrequently, to being this power horse. I wonder if it's because of the capacity to edit faster now with digital editing. Yeah, maybe. I guess. I mean, it's weird because his style, I know we're talking about the Thin Red Line, but just Terrence Malick in general, his style, it's tough because he's sort of become a parody of himself in a way. And look, I really- You said it. Someone was going to say in this podcast episode, you or me, and we both feel the same way. But I should be fair. Like, I really liked the movie Night of Cups, for instance. And I quite liked Song to Song. And I I really liked Tree of Life. I liked the Ben Affleck one less. And I haven't seen his newest movie. But even though he's become something of a parody of himself, I guess, he's still one of a kind. Like, if someone- he really owns this space, <laughs> which is, you know, VO ruminating over beautiful photography as characters kind of walk around thinking. Yeah, basically, he owns a space that filmmakers at film school parodied, and that yeah. is voiceover. And at film school, for the last 40 years, film school students have done voiceover and nonsensical poetic images stitched together. and. Then they'd read the book Story, the screenwriting Bible by Robert McKee, who would say, do not use voiceover, show, don't tell. And all these film students would say, but I love Malik, but I love Scorsese like Goodfellas. And someone like Robert McKee would say, Scorsese and Malik, you ain't. They're an exception to the rule, show, don't tell. And in seeing more and more of Malik's films coming out, he hasn't become the enigma that he used to be. He's become this 
filmmaking machine. And if you go to YouTube, there's actually a series of videos where aspirational filmmakers have talked about the issue that Terence Malick films aren't films that people line up to see anymore. And even the most diehard Terence Malick fan hasn't seen all of his recent films because they're coming out so quickly. It takes away the magic because there isn't a gap between them. Totally. Even though the films are stocked with stars like Christian Bale, Natalie Portman, Ben Affleck, etc., etc., like in many respects he's a much more acceptable version of Woody Allen in terms of people want to work with him, but his films aren't being shown. Like the films that are getting released are making $100,000 at the box office. They're vanishing on streaming services, but clearly international financiers and producers and stars just want to want to work with the guy behind The Thin Red Line and Days of Heaven and Badlands. I mean, it must be fascinating to work with him. Apparently, he has a, a very unique process. Like you said, you might be doing a scene and then he'll just pan the camp, like point to Emmanuel Zbitsky to just film that bird over there or, or whatever. It'd be a very unique process. I mean, I think the voiceover in Thin Red Line works really well. I mean, because it's never actually just saying what is on the screen. It's not like, Jim Caviezel's character is like a bird, a soldier, a man. You know, they're saying just very esoteric, philosophical musings. So, in this case, I'll take Terence Malick over Robert McKee, the writer of an episode of Mrs. Columbo, when it comes to cinematic choices. (laughs) But to me, it really works in this, and it's one of the elements that really pulls the whole film together. Oddly, it's those things. It's more kind of conventional story elements are kind of what rub up against that slightly oddly in that the movie is a little bit schizophrenic. You know, when you have these kind of very practical scenes of John Cusack and Nick Nolte trying to figure out how to take the bunker up against the scenes of the guys with the um, Polynesians and stuff, it sort of is an odd fit. And I can see why in his later movies, Terrence Malick sort of started really abandoned more conventional narratives in that that's just clearly not what he's interested in. So, if I was to ding this movie for anything, it would be kind of that, that there is a sort of odd juxtaposition between the more traditional war film elements and his, whatever you'd call it, more artsy instincts. Well, that's the similarity between both these films, and it could be a good point to try and tie a bow on this review, in that they both are slightly schizophrenic in terms of their characterization. Earlier we mentioned the intense 20 minutes at the start of Saving Private Ryan, juxtaposed with the more conventional Man in a Mission, Dirty Dozen-style story. Similarly, this film starts off with that very poetic form of storytelling that's made Malik famous, the malevolent crocodile sinking into the water, the scenes, the montage sequences of Jim Cavaziel and his mate shirtless playing with the Polynesian kids and the families and just hanging out on what appears to be some sort of exotic holiday. South Pacific Island, yeah. Yeah. And then the war starts, and then it ends with those romanticised image of Jimbo swimming through the water in slow motion with the camera aiming up towards the sky. So, yeah, basically both films blend very extreme storytelling and aesthetic choices together, but the true side of the filmmakers is clearly on one side of the fence. Mm, Very interesting. I think- Spielberg naturally skews towards more conventional filmmaking, which he's incredibly good at. Oh, amazing. And I think the first 20 minutes of Saving Private Ryan are an exception in his filmography, not the rule. 
And that's okay. That's not a slur at all. That's him stretching himself and doing something pretty progressive at the time, 20 years ago. And as you say, Malik probably goes towards poetical imagery opposed to conventional narrative. And that's where he's lent increasingly in those last eight films in his filmography as well. So perhaps we should jump to a bit of the uh, the facts and trivia. What do you say? Any final thoughts? No, no. There's, there's, I'm sure for particularly the Thin Red Line, there's plenty of interesting trivia. Yeah. Well, let's go to uh, noted similarities in terms of coincidence or ripoff. Now, there's no knowledge or suggestion that these films were made in competition with each other. It's one of those examples in twin movies history of just serendipity. I mentioned earlier that this film started 10 years before it actually came to the cinemas. And these films don't have a similarity in relation to their storyline to each other, but they are different observations about the wartime experience. I thought what was interesting is that if the first film, Ryan, starts off with this frenetic U-boat opening sequence, in comparison, The Thin Red Line starts off with these melodic images of nature, including the crocodile sinking into the waters. But when it does have that U-boat scene and all the soldiers are there bracing themselves, I'd actually forgotten that when the boats land on the shore, spoilers ahead, no one's there. Yeah. It's the opposite of Saving Private Ryan. Like, it's a, it's a jump scare, essentially. Like, the fighting happens later on, but when they launch onto this beach, had you seen Private Ryan six months beforehand, you'd expect these guys to be peppered in their chest with bullet fire from the Japanese, and there's nothing. No one's there. Yeah. Let's then talk about which film has aged better. Which one do you think? To be honest, I think both have aged pretty well. I guess as period movies made 50 years after they're set, it's not like you have that problem with, oh, characters using flip phone motor rollers or something like that. And both are shot on film. I think the visual and special effects in both are pretty well done. So, I mean, neither of them looks particularly dated. Yeah, I agree. I think these films have aged really well. I recall watching a few 70s films recently where the blood would be orange because that was just the type of dye they used and so on. And if you watch, say, some films in the mid-2000s where they first started using digital blood splatter. It's quite obviously fake now in retrospect. But in these films, they use practical effects. They use visual effects like squibs. The blood looks dark red, like a t- arterial blood. And actually, in Private Ryan, when they do show like gore and so on, it looks incredibly naturalistic because it's actually a visual practical effect and not CG. And in The Thin Red Line, they actually often don't show any of the violence at all, and they sort of imply it off screen. For example, in that scene where Woody Harrelson pulls the pin rather than the grenade off his backside and apparently blows off his bum, which he's talking about, they don't show anything at all. There's like barely any blood, but what's implied is that the lower half of his body behind has been blown away and he must die by bleeding out. But that film wasn't particularly bloody, in which case there aren't many visual effects that fall apart in retrospect. No, true. It's actually a weirdly not very violent movie at all, The Thin Red Line. I mean, yeah, quite a lot of people get shot or bayoneted, but certainly if you've watched it right after Saving Private Ryan, it's I guess that sort of visceral depiction is not what Terrence Malick was after. Yeah, there's a sequence where the Japanese soldiers uh, surprise one of our key characters, I think it's Ben Chaplin, when they all surge out of this mist 
towards the last third of the film. And I just expected it to be like a lot of bayonet stabbing because they've got bayonets on the end of their guns. And that didn't really happen. Like we have that kind of classic image where you've got two warring parties clash and the first people on either side are taken out. But it's not as violent as, so let's say, definitely not as violent as the first 20 minutes of Private Ryan, nor as violent as, say, Lord of the Rings or Braveheart or something like that. Yeah, totally. So any plot holes or missed opportunities, do you think? Like what could the filmmaker have done better, if anything, with the idea of doing either a naturalistic depiction of Normandy or an existential portrayal of the South Pacific? I think earlier you said, oh, you probably couldn't in 1998 sustain a feature-length version of the Omaha landing. I'm not suggesting Spielberg should have or should do this, but I feel like you could probably do that now. Like audience, like Black Hawk Down. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess Black Hawk Down still has lulls in its structure and stuff, but yeah, it is pretty a pretty relentless long battle. Maybe it's never quite as frenetic and and violent as Saving Private Ryan, but, you know, you could do that now, I think. And in the same way, maybe Terrence Malick now would would go full-on, full modern Malick for his war movie. He'd spend the entire film just following those two guys on that island yeah, for, like, three hours, just hanging out. I'd watch it. Avoiding war. As just maybe the, the destroyer, the big boat or whatever, is slowly creeping towards them, representative of some sort of inevitability. I mean, I don't think, and it's certainly not plot holes or things, you know, that... I would say, oh, Terence Malick or Spielberg should have done differently. No, not me. What about you? No, I think both films stand up and I agree that both filmmakers could have lent in harder to the elements we discussed in 2019 because the way we've been inculcated as audiences to be more tolerating of natural depictions of wartime violence or just sort of watch Malick doing Malick. I do think that something like Zero Dark Thirty is pretty intense, but that film has long lulls of conversation. I can't think of anything that's as relentless as that first 20 minutes except Black Hawk Down, although I'm sure listeners to the pod may remind us that there have been other films that maintain that intensity for the entire yeah, time. Saying like, oh, that movie, Clive Owen movie, Shoot 'em Up is an example of that. It's probably not a great example of what we're talking about, although- yeah. Or Judge Dredd or yeah, Ray. Yeah, yeah. You know, although it is 90 minutes of nonstop action, I guess Private Ryan isn't really that. Yeah, I agree. All right, let's jump to casting what a shoulda could is. So, who else may have ended up in these movies? Well, apparently for The Thin Red Line, Josh Harnett auditioned eight times, yet he never actually met Malik, which is interesting. And Harrison Ford turned down the role of Gordon Tell. And De Niro, Robert Duvall, and Tom Cruise were all sent scripts for this film. But we don't know who, what character De Niro was offered. No. You've got to imagine it'd be either the Clooney character, the Nolte character, or the um, Travolta character. Because they're basically... Oh, Elias Cateus was probably in his mid-40s back then. And he looks like yeah. De Niro. <laughs> well, interestingly enough, I mentioned Ed Norton being interested in The Thin Red Line before. Apparently, he was offered the role of Private Ryan, but turned it down to work on American History X instead. Oh, yeah, right. An unknown so Matt Damon is pretty, pretty great in the role, though, I suppose. Yeah, I agree. And we mentioned also Billy Bob Thornton before doing two and a half hours of voiceover for Thin Red Line. He turned down a role in Private Ryan as well because he didn't want to film those Normandy beach scenes because of a fear of water. Who would have thought? So, do we think he would have been 
up for Tom Sizemore's role, maybe. He was up for the role of Sergeant Horvath, played by Tom Sizemore. Yeah, that makes sense. He's sort of the, the old bastard. Yeah. The other shoulda, woulda, coulda in Private Ryan is that Mel Gibson was also considered for the role of Captain John Miller before Spielberg decided on Hanks, and uh, so was Harrison Ford. Well, I guess Mel Gibson then went and made his own war movie a year or two later with We Were Soldiers. You're right. And then he did it again, I think, later. He did his second war film, uh, Heartbreak Ridge, I think, like 20 years later. So, obviously, those two films and Braveheart, he clearly has a bit of warmongering in him. Oh, he loves it. All right. Let's play Spot the Aussie. So, first of all, this is a hard one. Let's start with Ryan. Any Aussies to spot there? I didn't spot any. Is there? No. No. There's not. Okay. Let's jump on. All right. The Thin Red Line, shot in Australia. Here we go. Take your Plenty pick. Plenty of Aussies to spot. Take your pick. Go. Yeah. I mean, it's funny actually watching this movie because there's all these people who would be sort of on commercial TV, mid-90s network television in sort of like pretty pedestrian cop shows. Just sort of turning up in this, and you'd be like, oh, check it out. It's Simon Westaway as one of the troops landing, or Simon Linden, or Dan Wiley, all of these guys. It's actually really great watching it as an Australian. I mean, who did you pick and point at and yell at the screen? All those ones, but he left out the big ones. Oh, yeah. Matt Duran, who oh. played Private Coombs. Yep. He's probably most well known as Mouse from the first Matrix. Yep. Yep. And Miranda Otto, of course. most well known as Ewan from Lord of the Rings. All right, let's jump to Big Trouble in Little Production. Let's start with Ryan. So apparently during filming, Sizemore was battling drug addiction and Spielberg required him to be drug tested every day. And if he failed a test, he would have been dismissed and all these scenes would have been reshot with a different actor. Who would have thought? Imagine having to reshoot all of his scenes with a different actor. Oh, incredible. He's in a lot of two shots, you know what I mean? I'm surprised Spielberg actually hired him with the drug addiction, like, there'd be plenty of other actors to choose from. He must have really wanted Tom. I mean, he's turned into, I think he's got a very bad reputation these days and there's some sort of allegations around him or whatever. But back in the 90s, man, he was pretty awesome. Had a pretty great run of, of movies. And any time you turn up back then, you'd be like, oh, shit, yeah, it's this guy. Love this exactly. guy. And he'd done uh, Heat in 95 too, so he was on a hot streak. Oh, Hate, Natural Born Killers, Striking Distance, True Romance, Devil in a Blue Dress, The Relic. Fuck yeah. It's a raining Sizemore. Yeah. Let's jump to Thin Red Line. Apparently it took seven months to do the first assembly and it ran for five hours. And by the final cut, footage of performances by Bill Pullman, Lucas Haas and Nicky Rourke were all removed. Although apparently some of Rourke's scenes were included in the special outtakes of the Criterion Blu-ray and DVD release. Yeah, he does a lot of crying in his scene. Does he? Yeah, I think I've seen the scene. You must be able to watch it on YouTube, I think. So, check it out there, I guess. All right. Let's uh, jump to the uh, awards. Ding, ding, ding. Let's go to which movie was the box office champ. So, have a guess. Private Ryan. Private Ryan. Made for $70 million, which I've got to say seems like a pretty reasonable budget given the scope of this film. Yeah, Totally. Did a domestic of $216.5 million at the US box office, plus $265 million at the foreign box office, for a worldwide total of $482 million. So that's $482 off a $70 million budget. In contrast, Thin Red Line cost $52 million, 
unfortunately only made $36.5 million domestically in the US, plus another $62 million in international for a worldwide total of $98 million. So $98 million of 52 versus $482 million of 70. So Private Ryan cleaned up. Here's the thing. Apparently, Private Ryan was actually the highest grossing US film of the year 98. Really? With only $216.5 million. Really? Quite remarkable. Yeah, apparently so. In this era of Marvel films where those films are doing a billion dollars, often in Disney films as well, like once, twice, three times a year, it's incredible. Are you sure it wasn't actually Armageddon? That was the highest worldwide grosser. Oh, you said domestic. Yeah, domestic. Ah, well, there you see that foreign money put Armageddon over the top. For how much? Five hundred and fifty-three million compared to Private Ryan's four eighty-one. So international audiences like their saving the world fictionalized. They love it. And if you loved Armageddon, you can listen to us compare it to Deep Impact on an earlier podcast. Yeah, plug. in our very first podcast. Yeah, you like that? Like the little plug? Oh, I love it. Nice cross promotion. All right, let's jump to Rotten Tomatoes. Have a guess which one charmed the critics and thrilled the fans. I mean, I guess they're both pretty well-received movies. I suppose I'm going to go with Private Ryan as the winner here with the critics and fans. You're right. And I think you'll be surprised that The Thin Red Line didn't go as well as you'd expect with critics. Saving Private Ryan scored 93% on the tomato meter with critics versus The Thin Red Line on 80%. And with fans, Ryan has a 95% score compared to Thin Red Line, which is 80%. In fact, I'm actually surprised that Thin Red Line is as high as 80 with audiences. I would have thought, particularly given that these scores can actually come about years after the fact, that the short attention spans would mean that people wouldn't have the patience for it. All right, let's jump to best title. Saving Private Ryan versus The Thin Red Line. And before we start, a quick little explanation. Apparently, Red Line is named after a line from Runyard Kipling's poem, Tommy, from Barrack Room Ballads, in which he calls foot soldiers the thin red line of heroes, referring to the stand of the 93rd Regiment in the Battle of Balaclava of the Crimean War. Yeah, I know that dude. Everybody knows that. That's why it is the superior title. So that's your favourite title? No, look, I think Saving Private Ryan is a pretty good title. For a- Yeah, I agree. I think it's a great title. It says what it is on the tin and I think it's evocative. I think the only thing about it is that it makes you think that Mr Private Ryan will actually be in the film more than he is. But in some respects, the positive of that is that he remains an enigma to the very end. And so when you see this guy at the end, just like Ed Burns and co, you think, is, is this guy worth it? Yeah, and it lends itself to classic porn parody titles like Shaving Ryan's Privates or Saving Ryan's Privates and so on. I'm pretty sure Thin Red Line would also lend That's itself true. to porn parody sure, as well. Sure. All right. <laughs> All right, moving on to Best Poster. So to remind our listeners at home, Saving Private Ryan actually has a long shot of some soldiers walking along the horizon and then the floating heads of the main cast above. The Thin Red Line has three images of soldiers whose faces you can't see, predominantly just their helmets, and the poster cuts off and just shows their eyes staring intently towards the viewer, 
which one's your favourite? I don't think either of these are very good, so I will abstain the vote. Oh, well, I love the Thin Red Line poster. Oh, I think it's cool. great. Yeah, I think it looks really artistic. I like the fact that you can't identify the soldiers. Woody Harrelson's the soldier on the right. Is he? Yeah. Ah, interesting. I just think it sort of plays the idea that everyone looks the same in war. Oh, interesting. It avoids the floating heads by identifying them clearly, and the intensity on their eyes looks fantastic. Like, I really like this poster. Oh, there so you go. So, for me, it's the Thin Red Line. Ah, there you go. All right, moving on to the Bill Fleck Big Break Award, named after American actors Billy Bob Thornton and Ben Affleck. Who got their big break in these twin movies, starting with Saving Private Ryan? Well, I think we know who the winner is going to be. Is it not Private Ryan himself? Ooh, I actually had two others. Yeah, I mean, surely this was the movie that helped bounce for Matt Damon, this and Goodwill Hunting, probably not Courage Under Fire, although I hear that was what made Senor Spielbergo cast Matt Damon. But, yeah, I'd guess Matt Damon, No. Someone else? Who have you got? Well, Matt Damon had been in School Ties, Courage Under Fire. He'd been in a combination of indie films and Hollywood films already. And there'd probably been a bit of buzz about him being the writer and star of Goodwill Hunting. I think who really stepped up from the indie trenches was both Vin Diesel oh, yep. playing Private Caprazio or Caprazo. Caprazo. Oh, Caprazo, is it? Caprazo. And Ed Burns oh, yep. playing Private Ribbon. Yeah. So Ed Burns basically carved out a career of his own back with the Brothers McMullen and sort of like a pseudo-sequel to that. Vin Diesel did something similar with a short film that he wrote and created and produced called Multifacial. So I think those two guys basically jumped into the Hollywood big leagues more than Matt Damon. Matt Damon, okay. I think, was already on, on the way and Goodwill Hunting launched him to the stratosphere and he won an Oscar for it. But those two guys, I think, went from indie indie to the biggest film in the world that year. Uh, I think you've made a very compelling case here for those two guys, probably more so than Jim Caviezel and Ben Chaplin in The Thin Red Line, who parlayed their success in that to a year or two of being in things. Yeah, I think Adrian Brody had a big break. I mean, he's the main character in the book, and he was cut out of the film a lot. Apparently, he found out actually... At the premiere, which is pretty crap. Oh, brutal. Yeah. And apparently he was the main character, had the most lines, and apparently in the edit, whenever there was an opportunity for Malik to try and cut dialogue, he would, which basically meant a lot of Brody's dialogue. But Brody made up for it later on by winning the Oscar in The Pianist like four years later. But for him, I'd say Brody and Caviezel and Chaplin all got their big career starts in a Hollywood film with this one. But I'm going to go with Vin Diesel because if you look at his career now, where he's at, this film started everything. Let's give it to Vincenzo Gasolini. Excellent. All right. The Before They Were Famous Award, otherwise known as the Blink and You'll Miss Them. So there are so many. Let's start with Private Ryan. I've got Nathan Fillion playing Minnesota Ryan, otherwise known as the guy from Firefly and Castle. I've got Brian Cranston playing War Department Colonel, he of Breaking Bad, oh, yep. and also Tim Watley in Seinfeld, and <laughs> yeah. Paul Giamatti playing Sergeant Hill. It's funny seeing Paul Giamatti turn up in this. <laughs> it's, like, I know. Hey. it's bizarre. It's bizarre. He seems sort of out of time or something. Yeah, yeah, totally. How about you? What about the Thin Red Line? Uh, I've got Mark Byrne Jr. Oh, yeah. playing Private Peel, he of, I can't recall his character's name, but he's kind of like the heavy, heavy set, short, tubby one. From Sons of Anarchy. Yep. Look, there are so many. There's Jared Leto. Oh, yep. In a small role. Who else is there? 
You mentioned Simon Linden before from Australia. Yeah, I mean, John C. Riley turns up for a scene or two. Tim Blake Nelson. Tim Blake Nelson. I mean, also, you've got- Nick Stahl. Nick Stahl. John Travolta. Yeah, John Travolta. Any others? It's one of those movies which is just a, a bounty of riches. Who gets it? Which one? I mean, this, this is a tough one. I'm going to call it a tie. Both um, films, I think, are packed with so many people. I might give it to Brian Cranston because yeah. he doesn't even have a name. He's just called War Department Colonel. But he's really good. In a very small role, I think he's good. So I'm going to vote for Thomas Jane in The Thin Red Line. And I can't actually remember him be- like where he appears, but he's in there. Oh, he's swung with- Yeah, he's on a ridge and he's talking to John Cusack. Oh, okay. okay. You've convinced me. All right, Thomas Jane. Because he'd been in Boogie Nights the year before. And somehow he looks like five years younger in this film with that <laughs> glorious moustache he has when he plays a stripper in Boogie Nights. Yeah. All right. The Thin Red Line gets it. Okay, moving on to the Tommy Lee Jones Show Stealer Award. Who stole the show despite being in a small or poorly written role? Thomas Jane? <laughs> uh, okay. Do you think – does it have to be a, a poorly written or small role? Because for me, Barry Pepper fucking steals all of Private Ryan as like the most badass sniper there is. He's great, isn't he? He's, <laughs> He's very so good. good. He almost years struggled to overcome just how awesome he is as this bloke who sort of brags that if they just put him within – whatever distance it is to Hitler, he'd end the war. No worries. So I'm going to vote for Beezy Peps if we can. So you're not voting for Ted Danson or Dennis Farina, also in Saving Private Ryan? <laughs> Ted Danson, maybe you could have it. It's, it's fun seeing Ted Danson in the war film, particularly at that time when he was probably just on Becker. So it's like, oh, why is this sitcom actor turning up in this? But what about Thin Red Line, I guess? Who are they up against? There are so many. I mean, Paul Gleeson from Australia gets a small role as well. I think Elias... Cotius does a great job in his role. Oh, he's, he's great really in good. This. Yeah, he's really yeah. as sort of the um, not emotional heart of the movie, but he doesn't want to send his soldiers to their deaths. And yeah, he's really fantastic in this. And I think before this, he'd been in all these sort of like B pictures and stuff like The Prophecy, which rules. And it's really nice to see him have this really meaty, thoughtful role in the movie. Let's give it to Elias Cateus, man. Done. All right. The Dustin Diamond Award, which I think you renamed last time as something else, didn't Let's you? Let's call it, in this case, the Tom Sizemore Award. Oh, really? The Tom Sizemore? Oh, okay. Yeah. The Tom Sizemore Award, named in honour of an actor who didn't kick on with a big career after finding fame earlier on. Well, I guess he did have fame for quite a while, but then he- Oh, otherwise known as the award where you didn't make the most of your opportunities. Yeah. So, I had Ben Chaplin, who played Private Bell in Thin Red Line. I think that's the one. Like, what happened to him? I went through IMDb- He's gone home to Britain, and the first thing that someone's written in his INDB profile, which I think was probably his mum, was that Ben Chaplin decided to pursue edgier films that were driven by a story rather than succumb to Hollywood. Because this was, I think, one of those dream roles for young, young actors at the time, to both be in a Terence Malick film and to be in a Hollywood film. And if you look at the careers of everyone else in both of these films, everyone kicked on. But not only did Ben Chaplin not kick on to become a Hollywood star, but I can't recall the last film I saw with Ben Chaplin. I wouldn't be able to pick Ben Chaplin out of a lineup these days, I think, pretty meanly. But it's weird because that doesn't that description, like you said, might have been written by his mum, doesn't actually make sense when you look at his IMDB because after this he did do a couple of Hollywood movies, made Lost Souls with who's in that Winona Ryder. He did that film Birthday Girl with Nicole Kidman where he gets this mail-order bride and Vincent Cassell and Matthew Kasovitz turn up and sort of terrorise him. So he did 
do a couple of, sort of mainstream Hollywood movies. I just guess none of them were, were hits. Yeah, that's it. Unfortunately, not for him. All right. Unfortunately, Ben, you get the uh, Tom Sizemore Award. All right. The Winner Winner Chicken Dinner Award. Let's bang through these. Right. Who came out on top in each of these movies? I'm saying it was definitely Spielberg for Saving <laughs> Private Ryan. And I'd say Malik for yeah, Thin Red Line. Totally. Malik comes out on top because he hadn't made a movie for. <laughs> For 20 right, years. So Malik wins. Give it to Malik. All right. Terry has it. Let's move on to Best Dialogue Award. What is your favourite quote from either of these films? Would it be the jokes about FUBAR in Saving Private Ryan? And you wonder for ages, what does FUBAR mean? You find out it actually means fucked up beyond recognition. No, I'm going to take any of the VO from The Thin Red Line, particularly stuff that gets sampled into mid-2000s electronica. Okay, nice. I like that line with Sean Penn where he's asked by Jim Caviezel, do you ever feel lonely? And he responds, only around people. I like that line. It says a lot about him as an introvert. So, yeah. All right, so which one should we give it to? Thin Red Line. Thin Red Line? Yeah. Done. All right, the Nicolas Cage Chewing the Scenery Award. Let's start with Private Ryan. Any nominees? Who went big? I don't think that Nathan Fillion. Yeah, he's pretty big. So is Dennis Farina. I always find Dennis Farina to be a little bit too much. I don't think any of the main guys are OTT. No, I agree. What about in Thin Red Line? Sean Penn? Oh, that's easy. Travolta. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Jesus Christ. He goes big. Like, it's like he realises he's only in one or two scenes and he's chomping on that cigar just wishing he was back on the days, back on the shoot of Face Off. Yeah. So I'm giving it to Travolta okay. overall. Give it to him. Okay. The Taking a Paycheck Award, which speaks for itself. Any nominees? I think it was probably the opposite, right? Everyone was just desperate yeah. to be in these films. Maybe in this case, this award, not applicable. Yeah. All right. Moving on. The Stephen Tobolowski Award, a.k.a. Hey, It's That Guy. So again, so many. For Private Ryan, I've got Dennis Farina. And maybe Paul Giamatti. How about you? I mean, I feel like we've talked at a lot about all of these actors who turn up in both of these movies. Oh, shit. So, take your pick. Tim Blake Nelson, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I think the one who wins overall with both films combined is Dash Mihok, who oh, plays okay. Private Doll. He was huge in as Benvolio in Romeo and Juliet, Baz Luhrmann's film, about two years before. And it was funny, he is pretty much the most on-screen actor in The Thin Red Line. And he's one of those guys, if you look at IMDb, he's done a few things and he's done the last five seasons of Ray Donovan. But he hasn't gone on with the career you might have expected him to have, having been the centre of that film. I love it whenever Dash Mehook turns up in something. Yeah, he's great. For the audience who doesn't, don't know his face, he's the blonde-headed big Guy who's the friend of Leonardo DiCaprio in Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. All right, the Delroy Lindo Award for great actors who aren't cast often enough. Again, these films are so packed, you take your pick. I would say that Giovanni Ribisi from Private Ryan isn't cast enough. I do like him a lot. Yeah, I'm going to go with Barry Pepper from Private Ryan. Oh, good choice, good choice. Either of those guys. And Both of them are great. In The Thin Red Line, there are so many again. Elias Cateas. Yep, he's great. He should get it as well. All right. I'm going to give it to Barry Pepper overall. Share it around. Excellent. All right. The Memphis Reigns Award, inspired by the absurdly named character played by Nick Cage from Gone in 60 Seconds, who steals the cake for the most ludicrous name. They're all pretty tame, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, none of these movies are really going out of their way to have redonkulous names, are they? 
No, they're not. Let's move on. Let's okay. pull up on a draw. All right. The Die Hard Award, named after the influence of Die Hard and inspiring a subgenre of an everyday hero who's up against a group of baddies in a single location like Under Siege. So did either of these films create a wave of clones? I would say, ironically, Malik inspired himself, and you said before he became a parody of himself in some respects, and I would say that Private Ryan, I guess, was the precursor to a lot of video games and other films that went for that handheld, desaturated look. You know, they kind of like, I think, laid out the red carpet for that kinetic visual style in The Bourne Identity and the two sequels. Yeah. I guess Hollywood's always made war movies, so it's pretty hard to say, oh, these movies are directly responsible for, you know, Hearts War or something that came out afterwards, you know. But I think you're right. I think certainly the visual style of Private Ryan and DreamWorks themselves, for instance, made the World War II video game Medal of Honor, I think, which seems sort of very tied into all of this. But it's not like they popularised, invented a genre or anything. Yeah, I agree. All right, so we'll call that a, uh, call it a draw. They're basically, they're more inspiring of a an aesthetic yeah, and a yeah. tone rather than the genre. Yeah, fair. All right, mate, that brings us to the end of the show. Gabe, where can listeners find more of your work and musings this week? I suppose this week, as of last week, on Twitter, at Gabe Dowrick. And I'm at Ben Phelps on Twitter and Instagram and youtube.com slash Ben Phelps. And you can find all my podcasts, including Twin Movies, in the usual places like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you so much for listening, folks. If you enjoy the show, please share it with your friends on social media and leave us a rating on iTunes on Apple Podcasts. Take care. Stay tuned for another Twin Movies battle very soon. See you, Gabe. See you, Ben.